Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from this week's wrap-up of the recent Digital ILC 2021. This conversation, which includes Ian Rowe, Quentin Anstey, Mazen Nuruddin, Stephen Harrison, Louise Campbell, and me, centers around some of the drug development papers and work at the conference. Frankly, COVID slowed down the clinical trial profile so that most of what was presented involved retrospective analyses of papers that had been published previously or updates on papers that had not concluded their research phase yet. That said, there were interesting discussions on the use of diabetes drugs in the treatment of NASH and some interesting looks at cirrhosis, a promising area where there has not been a tremendous amount of promise to date. So this conference with 6,500 attendees created areas of insight, new areas to explore, and controversy. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Last week, Close to 6,500 stakeholders from across the global hepatology community convened virtually for the Digital International Liver Congress 2021. Today, join hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders, Dr. Stephen Harrison, Professor Quinton Anstey, Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, and Professor Ian Rowe, plus liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green as they explore some key topics from last week's Congress, today, on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. What was presented in this meeting was the reflection of the COVID-19 year. It's not like the previous meetings that we saw multiple presentation of, of new drugs. There was the psoriatic trial that Stephen presented, which was new, and uh, one or two new others. It was mostly a secondary presentation from Lani and semaglutide and cardiovascular or the fast core longitudinal follow-up, but not as many as the previous meetings. And, and, and that's expected after a slower enrollment and some static enrollments and trials. Uh, but I thought it, it was still very good for a year after COVID. So overall, I think we'll see more in the next meetings and more outputs. The NGM, probably they'll present their data in the coming meetings. BMS, we'll see, we'll see more. Stephen is more involved in those, so maybe he has more input. I agree. I mean, it was kind of a, an uncharacteristically short yardstick for prospective data, certainly less than what we've been used to seeing at prior Congresses and so forth. And I totally agree that it's probably due to COVID. I mean, there's no doubt that enrollment shifted to the right at least four, maybe six months for these trials. I mean, Quentin, we see that even with litmus trying to get these imaging studies done. So, I mean, it is what it is. I would say that we're primed for some big news at the next Congress. One way or another, there, there probably will be multiple different mechanisms of action being presented from the clinical side and probably more data on some combination work as well. Where I would say we move the goalpost, and maybe this is me being a little biased, but I do think for the first time ever in NASH, outside of bariatric surgery, we showed that we can take a well-compensated cirrhotic patient and we can improve their liver disease by at least one stage in a third of the patients. And 
I absolutely know and expect there to be naysayers to that, and that's absolutely fine. That's the way science is, and that's the way we get better. But just in the defense of that, every non-invasive test that we've talked about today got better. And to that point, we now have a magnitude of effect change that we need to reach, at least a preliminary bar that we need to reach to show a regression in a cirrhotic patient. You know, maybe it's nine for a pro-C3, or maybe it's almost a full point for MR elastography. I don't know, but that data is, is beginning to come out. It's early days, small numbers of patients, but I think there was some very helpful data, encouraging data that we could move the needle in a well-comp F4 patient. So that that was exciting. Where, where we go from here, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see more mechanisms being studied in cirrhotic populations. We have the reverse trial. We have the BMS Falcon 2 trial. We have the NGM F4 study, Alpine 4, and now we have an early small trial with semaglutide. But beyond that, there hasn't been a lot of interest in studying the NASH population. And I left out galactin with belapectin also moving into adaptive phase 2b3, although their endpoint is more of prevention of the development of varices rather than regression of fibrosis. But where do we go with the cirrhotic cohort is going to be very telling. You'll see a lot of movement coming out of this meeting as we move into future meetings with companies really trying to get after a cirrhotic population because in my mind that might really jumpstart the non-invasive test. It's easier to link an F4 non-invasive test to an outcome than it is a, an early stage disease. So maybe we prove it there. We get a drug approved on a non-biopsy endpoint in a cirrhotic and then we, re we reverse engineer this thing back to a, a non-cirrhotic population. But we could sit here and pontificate what's going to happen with the data, but I think it, it certainly brings up a lot of positive conversations relative to cirrhotics. So first, let me tell the audience that when Stephen made the point about research with cirrhotics speeding the path to non-invasive testing, I saw two head nods and a thumbs up out of five people, which isn't unanimous, but was pretty good, pretty good support for the point. Whoever else, I have a question, but if anyone else wants to go on, I will step back before I ask it. I just add one thing. I mean, I agree completely with what Stephen's just said there. The other study, which was interesting, was we're starting to see data, for example, targeting HSD 17B13. And that's appealing because we're now taking genetic signals that we we've identified and we're targeting those. And I, I think that's going to be the next wave of treatments. So again, tiny proof of principle studies, but hopefully we'll, we'll move that forward. And, and on that vein, Quentin, just to follow up, I was in five patients, I believe. Was that was it more than that? If that, it was mainly preclinical and then a, a very small number for safety. ULT reductions were something to talk about. Yeah. And, and that's the point. And I suspect from mechanisms of action like that, we're going to have to be much more focused on who we recruit into studies. Maybe it's going to be gene-driven. We know, for example, HSD17B13 interacts with PMPLA3. So it may be that there are subtypes there we need to chisel out for these sort of treatments. They're probably not going to be as tractable on a large scale as, as many of the others. But it's very exciting to see those beginning to come through. And of course, there are others which weren't presented at this meeting targeting similar genetic points. Yeah, you just struck a chord with me and made me think about something. You know, in all of our non-responders to drug therapy, whether it's a non-responder to an FGF21 or an FXR or an FGF19 or the THR beta or whatever, you know, we've never done genetic testing to link the responders versus non-responders. And I suspect there's a story to be told there and potentially linking that to future studies where, you know, if there are 
enriched for those particular polygenic risk scores. We study them using RNAi or oligonucleotide therapy or whatever. Absolutely. I think that's the way the field needs to move here. And particularly where we have failed trials to have the courage to do a deep dive or not even the failed trials, just the trials that didn't quite deliver what we what we'd hoped that they would deliver and start looking for subgroups, but in a very scientific and objective way. I totally echo that, not to mention the placebo response. Right now, we randomize based on type 2 diabetes. And the question is, we should randomize based on these genetics variants and look at the placebo response based on that. So first of all, all that makes tremendous sense to me. Uh, Second, I have a completely different kind of question, which is we've talked a lot over the last few months about both the regulatory availability or acceptance and the clinical value of for F2 and F3 patients finding drugs that might resolve NASH without having an impact on fibrosis. If you simply stop fibrosis for a, for a cirrhotic patient, how much benefit do you believe that will provide? Is that a realistic expectation for some of these drugs that maybe they won't have an impact or have a fast impact, but they might actually stop the process? And how do you think that will be looked at regulatorily in addition to how it would be looked at by the physician community and the leader community? The question that you ask raises a whole load of questions in light of some of the conversation we've just had about the identification of non-responders. Um, I'm not certain that I know what a non-responder is on a, against a histological endpoint where there's a lot of variability and the benefits to shifting population risk of disease progression where there may be some effective treatment might actually be quite large but we don't know that yet because we don't have the outcome studies to be able to tell. If you can stop progression of fibrosis and cirrhosis before patients have developed significant portal hypertension then it's likely that you'll see a reduction in clinical endpoints in that patient group and so in a clinical endpoint driven study you would probably see that. The impact on cancer risk? Well, I think that's that's uncertain and I, there are a lot of open questions about that. So those sorts of drugs probably will show benefit. I show as much benefit as a drug that's very active in reversing fibrosis, probably not, but they might still show a degree of efficacy in a, in a longer term study. You know, Ian, if we're thoughtful about this and we surmise one theorem and that is it doesn't matter what insult you give the liver, it's going to behave very similarly in how it reacts to the insult. If you agree with that theorem and then you have an alcoholic that presents to the ER with decompensating disease, and he has the come-to-Jesus moment where he quits alcohol. Six months later, we know that about half of those patients will show significant improvement. Many of them no longer require diuretics, no longer need paracentesis. Their energy level is back. Yes, they're still sarcopenic as heck, but they feel better, and their quality of life is improved. And quite frankly, we've all seen them go on to lead relatively normal lives. And certainly, had they not quit drinking, they would have succumbed to their disease. So that's a situation where you didn't regress cirrhosis. You just prevented it from killing the patient. And that speaks to the fact that if we can halt progression of disease through whatever mechanism, that that'll have a positive impact on outcomes. I agree with everything you guys are saying. If we take it to the patient population, we've heard Donna and all of the other advocates on here say that actually when we look at the FDA's ruling, that holding the disease where it is should be an outcome because patients are comfortable with that. If we do not progress 
there is more time and we can get the data that you're talking about. We can see if it leads to more endpoints. We can see if it regresses those endpoints. We can see what the cancer risk becomes. But if we're always trying to reverse it, we are missing the elephant in the room, which is actually just hold it, help the patient stay well. And we will see in most cases, exactly what Stephen's described there and Ian, is that we will get less health expenditure. A lot of people will reach that moment of, actually, I do feel better. I am regressing. And each small step that's a positive is often followed by the next step. Yes, there might be some regression in behaviour, but I'm actually more for forward movement, not necessarily that you can't make a mistake. And I think that's where we've got to get to. We have to say that it's not all about cure at the moment. It's got to be about plateauing the disease, I suppose, and not not progression. And Manal says it all of the time, that it really should be an outcome. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Over the next week and a half, we will be posting sessions that are edits of the various contributions made at NASHTAG, Fourth Global NASH Congress, and Digital ILC of the past week. On December 14th, I will be away on vacation, but Donna Cryer will be hosting an episode on completion of clinical trials and what it takes to get there successfully. And I will be back again on the 21st talking about why statins are not like NASH. Later in the month, we will have a celebration of our 20,000 download, and we have much good to look forward to in August and September. I'll tell you about that in a couple of weeks. I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.